0: Good morning church. It's good to see everybody this morning and thank you Matt for sharing our scripture reading today. We're going to be looking today at the very end of this book of Malachi uh, and what is the very end of our Old Testament and then next week we'll be jumping into the New Testament uh, going through the gospel of Matthew together for as long as God might have us to be there. It'll probably take us quite a while to make our way through Uh, those 28 chapters, but it'll be profitable, I'm sure. But today we're going to look at the last words that God gives under this Old Covenant, the last words that God gave to His Old Testament people, what are followed in your Bible probably by a, a blank page, which represents 400 years of history in which God was silent. And so what would God say... Before 400 years of silence, that's what we're going to look at today as we look at what I'm calling today the final word. You'll notice there's a question mark there because we know there's more to come in the New Testament. But for today, this is going to be God's final word in the book of Malachi and in those Old Testament days. Warren Wiersbe, one of my favorite writers, he said, God We'll always have the last word. That's good for us to know, by the way. God will always have the last word. For you, will that last word be salvation or judgment? It's a great question for us to begin our time in the word today. Will the last word of your life be one of salvation or of God's judgment? And so here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at these final words given to us in the Old Testament and the fact that the Old Testament closes with some needed reminders. We're going to see three of them today. It closes with some needed reminders for the people of God. As God is about to enter into, historically, a 400-year period of silence between the, gospel, the, the words of Malachi and the Gospel of Matthew. Before that period of silence, God wants to give them a final reminder. The first involves... The remembrance of the righteous. We have seen in this book these six disputes between God and His people. They began uh, with a dispute over God's love for His people, they also disputed God's justice. Toward his people, and God has some disputes with them as well over their sacrifices and their offerings and their and their marriages. There's a lot of back and forth in uh, the book of Malachi until we come to the section that we're looking at today. In fact, the the last of those disputes that we looked at last week involved this this age-old question of, of why is it that it always looks like that the wicked are always prospering and the righteous are always suffering? That's the nature of a sin-broken world, but God's people have always wrestled with that. We wrestle about that even today. Why does it look like those who are living contrary to God's ways always look like they're doing really well, and those who look like they're trying to live according to God's ways always seem to be having a hard go of it? That was the last of the disputes, and then God gives these final words. He speaks here about this book of remembrance. We see in in many places in Scripture God writing books. In fact, we know that God loves books because he has given us a book. God didn't send us a text message. God did not make a Facebook post. God gave us a book he did not write it across the sky though he could have done so he has shown us much about himself in his creation but God has shown his love for books and in particular one book that many of us hold in our hands his holy word and here he speaks about writing a book of remembrance There's been all this back and forth between God and his people, these six disputes that we have looked at over the last three weeks, and now God is going to give the final word, but before he does so, he references those who remained faithful to him in that day in which many had departed from covenant faithfulness. He speaks about his remembrance of the righteous. Now when we talk about God's remembrance or God remembering someone, we need to not misunderstand the terminology here. We're not saying that God has somehow forgotten about his people. And we go back to the book of Exodus and those early chapters and it says that God remembered his people Israel. It wasn't like God woke up one day and went, oh yeah, Israel. That's not what it means when God remembers someone. When God remembers someone, it doesn't mean that they've been forgotten. It means that God is about to act upon his covenant promises toward those individuals. So when he says that God remembered them, it means that he was getting ready to deliver them in Moses' day from their slavery in Egypt. And the same thing is happening here. God is preparing to do a new work of salvation, much greater than what he did in the book of Exodus. But prior to that, God remembers his people, and a book of remembrance is written before him of those who remained faithful to his name. And so it says, And those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention. He heard them and this book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Notice some things about those that are remembered by God because we want to be among their number. The Bible speaks about another book in the book of Revelation, the the book of the Lamb's book of life, which records the names of those who belong in the kingdom of God. We want our names to be recorded there. What are some of the indications that we are among those who are remembered by God because of their faithfulness? Well, first of all, we see in verse 16 there that he, the Lord God Almighty, is their typical conversation. While others were constantly complaining against God, as we've seen in this book, in these six disputes that happened between God and his people, while others were constantly complaining against God about their current circumstances, these were rejoicing in what God had done for his people. They were truly thankful and filled with gratitude, and their conversation with one another was constantly about the good, Now, it doesn't say specifically what all they talked about, but I think we can get some indications from some other places in Scripture about what do the godly tend to speak about that is worthy of God's remembrance. In Psalm 95, verse 1, we hear the saints saying, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation I think it's one of the things they were probably talking about, those who were written down in the book of remembrance. Colossians chapter 3 there in the New Testament says, let the word of God, uh, the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Again, another indication of what the people of God are to be using, what we're to be using our tongues for to praise God, not to complain against him. We live in a day where complaint is the norm. Complaint is all around us all the time. And I would love it if we in the church were immune from the temptation to complain. But I find it alive and well in my own heart. And I would say probably the majority of us in this room would affirm, yes, I'm constantly tempted to complain. To grumble. To follow in the pathway of those Old Testament folks who grumbled against Moses, but ultimately they were grumbling against God. And the same is true of us. Ultimately, when we find ourselves in a grumbling and complaining spirit, which is the spirit of the day, we can constantly find something to complain about. But what we need to recognize is when we fall into that temptation that ultimately our grumbling is against the Lord God Almighty. The one who has given us all things, ultimately our gripe is against him. But here, these righteous were not grumbling against God. They were expressing their gratitude for God and what he had done for them. May the same be true of us. Now, while he was their typical conversation and praise and thanks being given unto him, there's also this truth in verse 17 that they are his treasured possession. And this is special language here. Uh, there's a scripture over in Second Chronicles that, that talks about King David and the treasures that he had amassed during his kingdom and all of the gold and all of the silver. And then it speaks about, it uses the same Hebrew word as is used here when it talks about that he had other, even beyond the gold and the silver, that he had other special possessions, treasures that he had amassed that were near and dear to his heart. And the Bible here is indicating that that is how God feels about his own people. That we are his treasured possession. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. The Bible speaks about us being the treasured possession of God in several places. Let's look at just a couple of them. Deuteronomy chapter 7. In those final words of Moses as he is preparing to go and be with the Lord. He's writing these things down for the people. And he says to them, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You're a set apart people. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for what? For his Treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he's speaking to Israel here, and he's saying, "Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, you're not the mightiest. You're not the best looking. You're not the most well educated. You're not the strongest. And there's no attribute in you that would cause God to show you this special grace and favor. And yet, God has chosen you by His grace to be not just a possession of His, but His treasured possession, His jewel, if you will." Is what it's saying. The same idea in the New Testament, written toward the New Testament church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. People of God, this is where we find our worth. We do not find our worth in our personal accomplishments. We don't find our worth in our bank accounts, or in our titles, or in our degrees. We find our ultimate worth in the fact that our Creator has deemed us in His grace, His own treasured and special possession. We are His jewels and loved greatly. But also we see in verse 18 that God is wanting to draw here a dividing line. He has been doing this all the way since Genesis chapter 3 here in the Old Testament. God has been constantly drawing a dividing line between two groups that are oftentimes referred to as the righteous and the wicked. And in verse 18 then he says... Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. You'll see the dividing line, the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And this this verse in and of itself really called out from my heart a question this week. As I was preparing this message I just began to to ask the Lord, show us, Lord, what is the true distinction between the righteous and the wicked? Because I'm going to tell you, church, even in the body of Christ, there is a temptation to get this wrong. That we might misunderstand what the true distinction between the righteous and the wicked is. And let me say to us very clearly today, the true distinction between the righteous and the wicked is not what party you vote for on election day. We need to hear that in the church today. The true distinction between the righteous and the wicked is not your level of patriotism in in comparison to someone else's. God is drawing a dividing line here at the end of Malachi chapter 3 heading into chapter 4 that we need to see and we need to see rightly. Because if we get this distinction wrong, it may cost us our souls. This is serious. This distinction is described in my favorite psalm, Psalm 1. I love Psalm 1. It describes the difference between the the righteous and the wicked. And it begins this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So part of the distinction between the righteous and the wicked has to do with our response to the word of God. Do we delight in the things of God as he has revealed himself in his word? We'll talk more about the distinction as we move through the message this morning. The second thing we see, though, as the Old Testament is drawing to a close, we've seen a a final reminder of God's remembrance of the righteous, but we also see on the flip side a reminder of the removal of the rebellious. But just as God is going to remember the righteous and and preserve them in his saving action toward them, in the same way God is going to remove those who continue in unrepentant rebellion against him. He speaks about three times in these verses this thing called the day. Look at verse 1. For behold, the Lord says, that means pay attention, there's something here you need to see, behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And then in verse three, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now what day is he talking about? Wednesday? Thursday? What what, what day is this that we, we need to know what day is the Lord speaking of, and he is talking about this thing that we see all throughout the Old Testament called the day of the Lord. The day of God's judgment. Martin Luther said, There are only two days on my calendar this day and that day. And he was talking about the day of the Lord. He was reminding us there are only two days that we ought to really, truly be concerned about as the people of God. The day in which we are living right now, what will we do with this day that God has given us? And what will we be found doing in that day when He returns? That should be defining for our life. But what will take place on that day, the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord, that Malachi is speaking about here as this Old Testament draws to a close? Well, first of all, we need to see in verse 13 that that day will be a day of judgment for the prideful. He calls them the arrogant here. The evildoers, they will be stubble. They will be that which is left after the harvest is gathered in. As we look at the fields all around us right now, we see the stubble. That's the the remnants after that which is good and helpful has been gathered up into our barns and, and delivered to the marketplaces. The stubble is what's left in the fields. He talks about them being like ashes, what's left after the fire, just the remnants there that are remaining. These are pictures of judgment. These are pictures of what God is going to do to those who remain unrepentant in their relation to him who continue in their pride and in their arrogance to believe that they know better than he knows. These are those who are continuing to engage in their disputes against God without bowing the knee to him as Lord and King. There is a day of judgment coming. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, it's appointed for each of us once to die and then to face The judgment. This is true for all mankind. We will one day stand before the judge of all the earth. And as Abraham prayed. As he was viewing God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. As he prayed. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And he will. His perfect justice will be displayed. He is being merciful in the current moment. Not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. He is continuing to extend the gospel opportunity to us to bow the knee before Him in repentance and faith and to trust Him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That coming day will be judgment for the prideful. But then look at verse 2. He doesn't want us to miss this. That day will also be joy filled for the faithful. Two responses to the same day. For some, it will be the worst of days. A day of judgment that leads on into eternity. For the others, it will be the best of days. A day of joy that leads on into eternity. How can two people experience the same day so very differently? Well, notice what he says in verse 2. He says, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. By the way, that phrase leaping like calves from the stall, it was a common practice among the Israelites that they would often put their their calves in a pen through the duration of the winter lest they get out and be harmed by by some kind of a wild animals or or lest they freeze to death, they would actually keep them oftentimes pinned up all winter long. And you can imagine the joy of those calves as they were released out into the field for the first time in the spring. He's saying, that's the picture of what it'll be like for my people on that day, having been released from the winter of this sin-broken world, having been given full and complete freedom from sin and death and hell and the grave what joy will there be for the people of god we'll go out leaping like calves from the salt stall he speaks about the son of righteousness it's not the s-o-n though i think it is a reference to him but the s-u-n son of righteousness and it causes us to consider for a moment the nature of of the life-giving sun in our own solar system. He's, he's giving here a picture to us of what the day of the Lord is going to be like as we consider the sun. Our sun gives life to this planet without the sun. If the sun were to burn out, all life would cease to exist, the planet that we are residing upon. And yet we also know that while the sun is good and gives warmth and light and many good things, the growth of plants and and light for our eyes, all of those things that are good that come from the sun, we also realize that the sun can also have a destructive force to it. If you were to go out today and seek to stare directly into the noonday sun, what will happen to your eyes? Death. And as we consider what happens with the sun in the, in the middle of the summer when there hasn't been rain for a few weeks and we begin to see the grass drying up and, and turning brown, what's happening? It's the effects of the sun. The sun is bringing, the same sun that brings that life is also bringing that death. That's what he's saying here, that this day of the Lord, this day on which Christ returns no longer as a baby in a manger, but as a victorious king, that that day for some will be life and joy and eternal peace. And for others, it will be death and judgment and eternal suffering. So where is the true distinction to be found? Is the true distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who receive the son of righteousness as a source of life and joy and peace and those who will experience him as the source of eternal judgment, is that distinction found in us? What I want you to see today, it is by no means found in us. That the true distinction that he is talking about here is found firmly fixed in the faithful one in the One who would come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. All of us were wicked and sinful and deserving of the judgment of God. And apart from what Jesus Christ came into the world to do, the perfect Son of God who became sin for us, though He had no sin of His own, apart from that, we were all facing the judgment of Almighty God. We were all facing His wrath and His condemnation. And yet God Himself was drawing the dividing line God Himself was making the distinction, and the distinction would in no way be based upon what we would do or could do or have done. The distinction was based solely upon Christ and our response to the Son of Righteousness. Again, Psalm 1, we see the distinction played out a little bit more. Verses 3 and 4, he's like a tree. The righteous one is like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in season, its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And in the, the dividing line, the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Again, it's a picture of judgment. They're like refuse being blown away. By the wind. So the Old Testament closes with a final reminder. Of God's remembrance of the righteous. God's removal of the rebellious. And he finally wants us to see the road. To our redemption. If we would see clearly this distinction between the righteous and the wicked and desire to be on the right side of history as one of God's children saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, he is giving us glimpses here even at the end of the Old Testament, even before Jesus steps onto the scene in Matthew chapter 1. We are seeing at the end of the Old Testament here in Malachi some needed reminders that will guide us in the road to our redemption. First of all, look at verse four. he says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. He reminds them of the law here at the end of the Old Testament, the law of Moses in particular. And it causes us to consider once again what the law what the, the, the role of the law is, for us now some would claim that the law has no role in the life of the new testament believer i think that's false the law continues jesus said i didn't come to do away with the law i came to fulfill the law and and by and, and by application he then enables us to fulfill the law as well to walk according to the law not as a means of our salvation but as the fruit of our salvation But what does the law do for us? First of all, the law reveals our sin and our need of a Savior. The law is good. The Bible affirms again and again, the problem is not with the law of God. The problem is with our ability to keep the law. The law is that which reveals our sin and our need of a Savior. Romans 7, verse 7. Paul writes, what shall we say then? That the law is sin, By no means, that's one of the strongest negations he could use in the Greek language. By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. What's he saying? He says, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. You see, the law brings a definition, a needed definition to sin. That we might be able to see that which is rebellion against God. To see it clearly. God has graciously said this is what rebellion looks like. And also he has shown us this is what righteousness looks like. And the law is a a revelation of that. Not a means of our salvation. That can only come to us through Christ. But it is a signpost pointing us to our need for salvation. And so the law is good. But he also goes on in verse 5 to speak not just about the law, but to speak about the prophets. He has spoken about Moses, that one who represented the law of God. Now he speaks about Elijah that one who represented all the prophets of God, these spokesmen of God that God sent to deliver his message to his people all down through the years from Moses onward. We see this long line of prophets that were given by God all the way down. What we're going to see in the beginning of the book of Matthew, we're going to meet a guy named John the Baptist. He was the last in that long line of Old Testament prophets that was coming to bring God's word to God's people. And the, prom, the prophets were continually, continually calling God's people to repent and believe. Again and again and again we see it. I could show you dozens of scriptures where the prophets were calling God's people to repent and turn back to him in faith. But let me just show you one scripture from Acts chapter 19, speaking about the last and the long line, John the Baptist. It says, John the Baptist, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him that is jesus mark chapter one what does jesus come proclaiming repent for the kingdom of god as at hand Turn from your sin and trust in your king. That's what Jesus was proclaiming again and again and again. The gospel, the good news of our salvation, calls us back to this place of repentance and faith. And as I've shared with you many times, this is not a one and done, like I repent and believe back here somewhere and then I go on to live my life however I want to. That's not biblical repentance or biblical faith. It begins at a point in time, but then that continues. We continue to repent and believe until the day when our faith becomes sight, when we stand before our Creator and King. The gospel is not just that which saves us. It's also that which sanctifies us and prepares us for the glory He is preparing us for. Repentance and faith, the prophets continually calling So we see the law and the prophets. This is a summary of the whole Old Testament that's happening here at the end. He's reminding them of how the Old Testament began with the words of Moses and how the Old Testament is ending here with the prophet Malachi. And in the law and the prophets, the summation of all of these things. And even Moses and Elijah, I mean, consider where you see those two guys together. They are found here together at the end of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. Where do we see, well, who do we see Jesus meeting as he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration? As the heavens are opened and the voice of the Father proclaims, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Who are the other two guys standing there on the mountain with Jesus? It's Moses and Elijah. Now, why these two guys? I mean, there's all kinds of great Old Testament characters. Why not David? You know, why, why not Daniel? Why, why Moses and Elijah? Because, again, they represent the summation of... Of all that God was doing in these Old Testament days. All that was going to be fulfilled in Christ. They summarized that. And many scholars even believe, not only do you see them on the Mount of Transfiguration together, but if we were to fast forward to Revelation chapter 11, a day that's yet to come, we see these, these two witnesses that Revelation 11 speaks about, that God sends prior to the final judgment, that these two witnesses go out into the world. There's lots of speculation about who they are. But one thing is very clear. if they they're not Moses and Elijah. The things that they're doing look a whole lot like Moses and Elijah. They they are speaking on behalf of God. They are bringing plagues. There's miracles that are taking place. There's a lot of things there that are, that are looking like those two guys in Revelation 11 may very well be Moses and Elijah. And so God brings these together in order that we might look to the one to whom they pointed. While he is closing this Old Testament with a picture of Moses and Elijah, of the law and the prophets, ultimately he's just wanting to give us a signpost to show us where to look as we're preparing to make a 400-year leap between now and next Sunday. We're going to move into the book of of Matthew. He's wanting us to know that Moses and Elijah are pointing forward to the one who is to come. That the law was ultimately pointing us to the one who would fulfill the law on our behalf. That the prophets were ultimately pointing us to the one who was the greatest of all prophets. The greatest spokesman that God could have sent was his one and only son. So as we come to the Old Testament, we see them pointing us forward, calling us to repentance and faith. And reminding us of the Christ who came to take away the curse. I want you to notice something in verse 6. It says, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. The hearts of children to their fathers this is a picture of repentance, by the way. He said, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And boom, the Old Testament ends. Now, a lot of the Jewish people really hated that ending. Like, seriously? We're going to end? That decree of utter destruction is, is a word that's a reminder of the Genesis 3 curse of what God had to do in response to the sin of mankind coming in, rupturing his good creation. It was a reminder of the utter destruction that comes when we rebelliously sin against Almighty God. And a lot of the the Jews, when they read the book of Malachi, many of them went, it can't end this way. How is it going to end with a reminder of the curse? It should end with a blessing. And so some of them, uh, the Mazarites, were a, were a sect of the Jews. And then when they would read the book of Malachi, they would actually read verse 5 again after they read verse 6. Because they really wanted it to end with on a high note. They wanted, they wanted it to end, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, period, the end. That seemed good to them. The Septuagint, which is the uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when they were putting that together, the translators actually flipped verses 5 and 6 because they said, again, we wanted to end on a high note. We don't want to end with the curse. Let's just flip verses 5 and 6. But why in the world would God allow the Old Testament to end with a reminder of the curse? The answer is because This is not the final word. This is not the final word given to God's people. Oh, it was the final word that the folks in Malachi's day would hear and there would be 400 years of silence prior to God speaking again in the days of John the Baptist. And then ultimately in Jesus Christ himself, the son of God came and he spoke as one who had a greater authority than all the prophets put together. But God ends the Old Testament with a reminder of the curse because there's more to come. And because Christ would come and take away that very curse. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And again, Psalm 1. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Again, this distinction and the dividing line is in the righteous one, the one who became a curse for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that at the end of all things, at the final, final word, In the book of Revelation, God can say something very, very different. Let's look at it together as we close this morning. Revelation 22, verse 3 says no longer will there be anything accursed in the new heavens and the new earth and the final day the great day of the lord has come the judgment has taken place and now the eternal state has come and in that day there will no longer be anything accursed the the curse of genesis 3 will be fully done with but the throne of god and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and then we fast forward to verse 20 and it says, And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And we hear God's people saying, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then here's how God gives the final word. Not a curse of utter destruction, but the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And so I would ask you today. What will be the final word spoken over your life? The final word spoken of your life will be one of two things. It will either be the final words of the book of Malachi. A curse of utter destruction. Or it will be the final words of the book of Revelation. Grace. Grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with you, not just for a moment, but forever. And so I'd ask you today what will be the final word spoken over your life? And the difference maker will not be in you. Your works. Or your accolades or my abilities or accomplishments the difference maker the distinction between the righteous and the wicked is found in Jesus Christ and our response to him who is the son of righteousness and so how will you respond to him today we're about to come to the lord's table which is a reminder that His body was broken and His blood was shed so that we could be redeemed. The King invites us to this table as a reminder that He has remembered us. That He has judged us righteous, declared us righteous, not because of anything in us, but because of what was found true of His Son and proved true by His death, burial, and resurrection. we come to the table today we hear a gracious reminder of the gospel as we come to the Lord's table today we want to invite you if you uh, belong to the Lord Jesus Christ through repentance and faith if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ and you are in in communion with him you are invited to this table you don't have to be a part of, of our church but if you belong to his church we invite you to join with us today in the Lord's Supper I want to have a time of prayer for us. The scriptures in First Corinthians 11 encourage us to take some time to examine ourselves before we come to the Lord's table. I've said many times we want to examine two primary areas. First of all, we want to examine the vertical relationship between us and God. Is there any unconfessed sin, any, any unrepentant sin in your life that needs to be confessed before God? This table calls us to a place of repentance. Let there be nothing that's standing between us and God as we come to His table. But it also can cause us to consider our horizontal relationships with one another. If there be anything that is existing, any, any any bitterness, any unforgiveness, anything that's broken in relationships, particularly in this body, but with really we go even broader and look at other relationships in our lives as well. If there's any forgiveness that needs to be offered or or received. This table calls us to be in right communion, not just with God, but with one another. And we come to this table together as a result. So as Grant comes, I'm going to pray for us and our deacons will prepare the table. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this table. We thank you for the reminder of your grace that in Christ you did for us what we could not have accomplished for ourselves. We could have died a thousand deaths and never paid for one sin. He died once for all and paid the penalty for all of our sin and unrighteousness and rebellion against you. And we come celebrating that today joyfully. We have nothing to add to the table. We simply come in a response of gratitude and joy. Father, help us to examine ourselves today. Lord, if there be any unrepentant sin that is existing between you and us, may we confess it even now, taking up the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That promise is based in the cross. May we lay hold of it today. And if there be any form of broken relationship between us and others, may we recognize that we have been forgiven much and therefore we are called to be a forgiving people. This is not easy, but it is necessary. And so may we take up that call today. And then we come to the table. We remember His body was broken for us so that we could be made whole. His blood was shed so that we could be redeemed. We thank You for it. In Jesus' name.